Good morning, everyone. You're all very welcome to the beautiful surroundings of the Weston Hotel, and you're very welcome to this, the fourth in our series of in-house masterclasses this year. And this morning's session looks at investigations and inquiries. And we have a focus on financial regulatory inquiries, but we're also going to try and broaden the focus in the limited time available to us. So if I could look a little at how the practice of investigations and inquiries has developed in Ireland in the past few years. Five years ago, I helped to establish the practice. And at that stage, it was a dormant practice area. So to put things in context, today, our practice comprises some eight partners and some 12 associates who are primarily involved in investigations and inquiries. And they have a diverse range of expertise as all modern inquiries and investigations require. And that includes the conventional skills of dispute resolution litigation, financial regulation expertise, privacy and data security, public and regulatory law, and criminal law. So if we can just look briefly at how an investigation may arise. And broadly speaking, investigations break into external and internal investigations. And quite often, they run in tandem. And generally speaking, a starting point may well be an external investigation launched by a regulator. Sometimes investigations concern allegations such as bribery and corruption. They can originate with a whistleblower. They can originate from some other internal source within the organization. And then one has the whole area of statutory and non-statutory inquiries. And if we just remind ourselves of the purpose and benefit of an internal investigation. So faced with an external investigation, a company will often try to get to the bottom of whatever the particular fact scenario is and understand the issues that it faces. So as a truism, the purpose of an investigation is to get to the facts and to get to them as quickly as possible. That may culminate in the production of a report which ultimately may or may not be shared with the regulator or with some external agency. Commissioning an internal investigation allows a company to learn the facts and then to deal with it by way of mitigation or perhaps by self-reporting. It allows the organization to address the exposed deficits. And more and more importantly, it allows companies to protect and vindicate their corporate reputation. And it is an essential tool of good governance. Looking at the climate that exists now in terms of investigations and inquiries. This time last year, the Law Reform Commission launched its report on regulatory powers and corporate offenses. And it's chastening to think that no less than 200 separate recommendations were made in that report. And for instance, it recommended the introduction of such novel concepts in Irish law as administrative financial sanctions and regulatory enforcement agreements, which will be enforced by our courts. 
That in turn came against the backdrop of the government's white collar crime package, which was introduced in late 2017. And the enactment of signal legislation, such as the Criminal Justice Corruption Offences Act and the anti-money laundering and terrorism financing legislation. And I suppose the challenge that all of this poses to legal counsel and professionals involved in the area is somehow to strike a balance between the requirements of an ever more vigilant regulator and the conduct of, if you like, normal business. So what has our experience been of investigations and inquiries in the past five years? I think our overall impression has been of an increasing proliferation of investigations and a complexity, a growing complexity in their conduct, particularly in terms of information gathering. There's often an international aspect now to these investigations. So to give you some actual examples, we have conducted an independent investigation on behalf of an Irish bank as to how it had dealt with distressed SME customers and that culminated in a report which was shared with CBI. We acted for a private equity firm involving the review of the acquisition of a portfolio of distressed assets. And that had a very international context because it involved allegations of serious political corruption. And at one stage, there were nine separate inquiries running across four jurisdictions. And that required collaboration between the clients' legal teams in those four countries to try and organize the conduct of those various inquiries and investigations, an internal investigation running alongside that, where we were trying to get ahead, basically, of what was happening and to advise the client of likely outcomes. And then looking at, if you like, the public inquiries, we were involved in the Moran non-statutory inquiry into the Rio Olympics ticketing controversy. And then we have the ongoing SiteServe Commission of Investigation, which, as you know, relates to asset disposals by IBRC, where losses of more than 10 million to the Irish Exchequer were involved. Looking at these investigations that cover such diverse topics as alleged sexual harassment, alleged human trafficking of foreign nationals in the Irish fishing fleet, the theft of company property, data breaches, the sale of unlicensed medical products, the list goes on and on. So in terms of our format this morning, you'll hear from three speakers, and then we'll have a panel discussion, and that will be chaired by um, Simon. And I would just ask that the normal Chatham House rules apply, and we would welcome questions from the audience. We'll have an email that you can send your questions live, um, and that they be non-case specific. If I could introduce you to our panel, we're very grateful to our panel for taking time out of their busy lives to share their expertise with us. And our first speaker is Shauna Cunningham. And Shauna is Director of Enforcement and Anti-Money Laundering at the Central Bank. She was formerly head of that section. And in an earlier life, Shauna was a partner in a leading Dublin law firm. Simon Carswell, I think we'll need little introduction to you. Simon, as you know, is the public affairs editor of the Irish Times and its former Washington correspondent. And Simon received Journalist of the Year Award for his acclaimed coverage of the Irish banking crisis. And in his book, 
Anglo Republic inside the bank that broke Ireland, he has probably written the definitive history of that sad chapter in our banking history. And finally, my colleague Murren Dennehy. Murren joined our investigations team in March of this year. She is qualified in both the UK and the US where she has worked with leading global law firms. And her experience includes working on the UK's first deferred prosecution agreement involving Standard Bank, the Volkswagen emissions cases. She was acting head of investigation at Morgan Stanley and she has also worked as a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. So I'd ask you please to give a warm welcome to Shauna Cunningham. Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone. And, and first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Mason Hayes and Kern for asking me here today. It's an opportunity for me to come and talk to you a bit about the work of the Enforcement and Anti-Money Laundering Directorate in the Central Bank of Ireland. Given the topic today, I'm going to focus on enforcement and the work that we do. And effectively, I'm going to talk about why we investigate, how we investigate, and what are our expectations of the firms and individuals we engage with as part of our investigations. In terms of how we're set up, enforcement in the central bank comprises of two divisions. And effectively, the work that we do there is we conduct enforcement investigations, and we work in the development of policy in relation to enforcement generally. And I suppose in terms of why do we do this, well, in the context of the enforcement actions we take, what we're looking to do is where there are serious or significant breaches of regulatory requirements or standards, the Central Bank of Ireland takes enforcement action in order to deter misconduct and promote compliance. And in the round, what are we looking to achieve here or what do we want to see? What we want to see is a trusted financial system where financial services firms and individuals working in them adhere to a culture of fairness and high standards. So I thought I might give you some context in relation to the enforcement work or the body of work that we've undertaken to date. And I'm going to talk about our two key enforcement processes, which are the administrative sanctions procedure and the fitness and probity regime. But I would say that these are not the only tools in a regulatory toolkit. There are other tools that we can and do deploy depending on the circumstances and how we seek to bring about compliance. If I talk firstly about the administrative sanctions procedure, since 2006, the Central Bank of Ireland has concluded 131 enforcement actions and has imposed monetary sanctions in the sum of just over 99 million euro. Most of these cases have been taken as against firms, but there have also been cases taken against senior individuals in financial services who have, and we have imposed disqualifications and monetary sanctions in respect of individuals also. In the context of the fitness and probity regime, which is newer, in the last four years, the central bank has issued six prohibition notices in relation to individuals working in financial services. And one thing I would say in relation to the actions we take here is how we deal with our public statements. Last Friday, we published our most recent prohibition notice under the fitness and probity regime. And what you've seen us do in the last two instances is we've actually published the full decision taken in the context of a prohibition. And the reason that we are doing this and the reason that we are being a lot more, um, providing a lot more information in our ASP public statements too, is what we're looking to do is to provide you with greater guidance in the context of 
why is it that we take enforcement action in certain cases? And secondly, what are the issues that we see as being so serious? Because this is an education piece for the sector as well as the individual firm that we engage with. And I would encourage you in the context of when you look at these state or these enforcement actions coming out from the Central Bank of Ireland, don't just look at the media reporting because the actual public statements themselves have had a lot of thought put into them and there's a lot to learn in reading them. In terms of how we investigate, and I suppose it resonates in the context of what Liam described too, we, the investigations we are undertaking are becoming more and more complex. And in that context, we are dealing with big data in our investigations. And how we are setting ourselves up to do that is through the um, use of technology. And we have also built up a data specialist team. So if you are engaged in an investigation being conducted by the Central Bank of Ireland, you can expect that our data specialists are either behind the scenes in the context of interrogating what comes in, or indeed you may well be meeting with them if we're going to look to understand your methodology and perhaps to challenge how you've conducted a, 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 a dealing with a request for statutory information. So I suppose in that context, I was just going to talk a little bit about our expectations of firms and individuals when you are faced with a regulatory investigation by the Central Bank of Ireland. And a comment that I would make based on the experience and what I've seen is that there, has, there can be a tendency to view uh, engaging in a regulatory investigation as being litigation, to see it as how you would conduct two private parties going in front of the High Court. And what I would say to that is what this does not take into account is this is not litigation and it is a regulatory investigation and you are dealing with your regulator who authorizes the firm, who supervises the firm and will continue to do so in a normal course after an enforcement action. And you are also dealing with the powers of a regulator. So when statutory requests for information come in, this is not a discovery process as you would deal with typically in high court litigation. You are dealing with the powers of the regulator set out in statute that allow us to come out and require and request this information. And I'm going to just talk a little bit about what does cooperation with the regulator mean? Because I think, and I've seen this at times, a certain misunderstanding that, well, if I turn up to a settlement meeting with the Central Bank of Ireland, well, that ticks the box of cooperation. Well, it doesn't, and the expectations around that are much broader. And if I were to give you an example, an area where we frequently see what we see as a lack of cooperation is you know, repeated failures to meet deadlines in terms of our request for information. Uh, under the use of our powers and you know whilst we're willing to engage with firms and their legal advisors constructively and we understand that you know getting the data together and transfer needs to be carefully managed and we're open to these discussions we are not open to our investigations being frustrated and slowed down constantly and that is something that we're really focused on and you've started to see us in public statements start to talk about cooperation in the context of what we see as aggravating and mitigating we're going to publish guidance in November in relation to our sanctioning factors that are set out in the ASP outline in order to allow firms and people advising them a better understanding of how we see those sanctioning factors and what we take into account. The last thing I'm just going to mention in the context of if you are dealing with an investigation by the Central Bank of Ireland is to really think particularly for senior personnel and financial services about the truthfulness and the, you know, uh, and the fulsomeness, I suppose I would say, of the information that you're providing to the central bank, be it by way of certifying or signing off on information that's coming into us, or indeed if you're subject to an interview by the Central Bank of Ireland. 
The prohibition notice we published last week under the fitness and probity regime really signalled how seriously the Central Bank of Ireland views the provision of false or misleading information to the regulator. We cannot do our job if we cannot rely on the information we receive from the firms that we regulate and we supervise. So what I would say is that at the most serious end, the provision of false or misleading information may actually lead to a consideration of an individual's fitness and probity, and at the most serious end, depending on the use of our powers, indeed a summary criminal prosecution. So as I mentioned, we're going to be publishing further guidance in November, and I think what that will also highlight are the benefits of cooperation with a regulator in the context of an investigation. And I'm just going to briefly mention reform. Leon mentioned the Law Reform Commission's work and the Central Bank of Ireland was heavily engaged in their work in looking to enhance the system and enhance the framework, and we made very fulsome submissions. And as part of that, and as part as well of the report we did on the behaviour and culture of the Irish retail banks, we made proposals to enhance individual accountability in financial services. And um, whilst ultimately that would be a matter for the Oireachtas, we continue to work really closely with the Department of Finance on those proposals, because it's important that we keep the framework under review and look to to enhance it where we believe it to be necessary. So I hope what I've uh, said out to you today is of help and I'll pass you over to Mary. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Liam, for that very kind introduction and thank you, Shauna, for an encouraging and honest insight into the issues facing the regulator in its enforcement activities. I hope that together we can reflect and consider those expectations and turn them into best practices in a way that is reasonable and practical for the various organizations represented in the room here today. And so to today's event. From my experience, and as Shauna has mentioned, a successful regulated market requires all market participants to know the rules, understand your obligations and the regulator's expectations, cooperate with the regulator to the extent that is reasonable, necessary, and in your best interests. The purpose of today's event is to provide a platform which facilitates frank discussion about the issues with which you, the market participants, are faced. We hope to have an open discussion and we hope that you will share in time your perspectives on the current state of play. From my time in London, I was lucky enough to have seen the renaissance that is currently ongoing in the Irish market in the area of enforcement. I remember well the flurry of conferences that went around the introduction of the Bribery Act in 2010 and 11. I was also part of the transformation of the UK's Financial Services Authority to the now Financial Conduct Authority. And as Shauna has alluded to, the regulator's shifting focus to conduct has happened here too. Now, I can't tell you what will happen in Ireland, but I would like to share with you my experience with foreign regulators, as I think that may well help you anticipate what will come. So today, I would like to address three topics. One, the lessons from what I have learned. What does, for example, an investigation actually involve? Practical considerations when dealing with Shauna, the regulator, and other regulators, because you will do so in time. And then finally, the alphabet soup that with which we are faced, the various acronyms that you see in front of you, those will be explained, because that is the future for us all. So looking at what I have learned, 
The first thing is you must be prepared for enforcement action. You must understand your organization and its regulatory obligations. You must understand your risk mitigation strategy, and you must have one. You must also have a crisis management plan or an investigation plan. From dawn raids to regulatory inquiries, regardless of the business and industry you are in, you must have an investigation plan. You are far more likely to control the narrative if you are preempting issues rather than being reactive to them. Now that plan will differ depending on the organization of which you sit, but one thing to note, and that counts for all organizations, is that the entire organization must know about the plan. That goes from reception staff to the postroom. I'll tell you about a case I worked on in Germany where we were the subject of a dawn raid by German prosecutors. Now, while all of the lawyers in the firm were well-versed on what the plan was, what the dawn raid pl plan was, and we had basically practiced it several times over, what we hadn't done was include the support staff. So when the prosecutors arrived, the reception allowed them in unannounced. So there were no senior partners in the room. The junior lawyers did their best, but at the end of the day, the senior partners weren't present in the room. So always include everyone in your organization. Do not let anyone outside of that plan. And what does that plan look like? These matters here are things you should address in order to create that plan. Who will most likely be legal, and for most of you here in the room, that will be either you or others in compliance or related functions in your organization. Legal must be at least part of the decision-making process. And for legal teams and the lawyers in the room, you must consider privilege. Thankfully, the recent Supreme Court decision, at least in the UK, in ENRC, has clarified that privilege does apply to internal investigations and investigations involving the regulator. Now, as to whether we will have that here in time, only time will tell. There will also, of course, be internal reporting. You will likely have to inform various risk committees and possibly even your board, depending on the nature of the investigation. You must have a comms protocol. That should indicate who ought to be informed and who makes the ultimate decision. That also must involve who is going to speak to the regulator, your shareholders, and possibly the market, if needs be. Now, don't forget your other advisors. I would say the lawyers in the room are the most important, of course, because this is who we are. But they will be key, but they are also other advisors that you need to consider. Forensic accountants, for example, investigations firms, and so on. Now, moving to the next, what? And Shauna has already alluded to this. The key what in an investigation is data. Data and records. If faced by regulatory action, you need to possibly implement data holds, document holds, and cease your destruction policies. For sensitive data, you will likely need to make backups, you will need to consider GDPR, and so on. Final what is, what are the wider implications of this investigation? What does it mean to my business, my team, my function, and the organization generally as a whole? And essentially, what is the risk posed? For that, you will need to consider public relations, shareholder issues, and so on. So the next one, why? Why have a plan? Well, I think that's fairly obvious to most of us in the room. 
The regulatory risk posed by enforcement action is obvious and huge. There are serious fallouts that ought to be considered and you need to have that as the core of your plan. When? When faced with regulatory action, timing is usually of the essence. You must act urgently. Do not sit on a request. You must bring it to those further up your organization and essentially include as many people as possible within that request. And finally, as to the where. The where is everywhere within your organization. It's not just legal, compliance, risk, and so on. It's everything. You need to look and be alive to the risks that are posed in various parts of your organization and ensure that those are covered off in your investigation plan. And finally, practice, because practice makes perfect. Now on to what happens when the practical, well, the practical considerations when you're dealing with your regulator. Unfortunately, there isn't any textbook on how to conduct investigations. So I'm going to draw on a couple of examples that I've learned in the time that I've been involved in this field. As Shauna noted earlier, the first issue is that an investigation is not litigation. Dealing with a regulator is very different than standing in front of a judge. Litigation is adversarial. Litigants prepare on the basis of various probabilities or beyond reasonable doubt standards, depending on the circumstances. They prepare on the basis of client instructions, which may or may not be on the basis of truth or founded in truth. The purpose of an investigation, on the other hand, is to make findings of fact, to uncover the truth. Now, fact-finding and conclusions of liability are very different things, and they ought not to be conflated. Our role as legal advisors is to best advise our clients on how quickly to find fact, and possibly, depending on the circumstance, report it to the regulator. After that point, it is our role to advocate in our client's best interests. So while cooperation with the regulator ought to exist on fact-finding, in terms of finding liability, that discussion is an entirely different matter. The next thing I want to talk about is the distinction between rules and practice. And this I'll take from, again, my own experience. When I was in-house, I used to deal with the FCA on almost a weekly basis. The way in which the rules operate in, in practice, however, were very different to when implemented. When we were given a, requ a request for a document production, for example, it would usually come in on a formal basis. We'd pick up the phone and have that informal discussion. In most all, all circumstances, we would agree to that document request, but then ask that the regulator provide us with an obligation or an order in order to agree to it and actually provide the documents. That was done pursuant to this rule. Now, none of the words in this rule indicate that that is the process. However, it was necessary, given the client in which I was acting at the time, to, for everyone, including the regulator, to reach their end goal so that everyone was happy at the end of the decision. And now, finally, on to the future. What does that look like? As Liam mentioned, the investigation space is undergoing vast change at the moment. The CBI, led by Shona, of course, its enforcement unit has ramped up significantly the enforcement activity in the financial services sector. 
More broadly, the government recently, last summer, introduced new bribery and corruption legislation in the form of the Corruption Offences Act. Now, can I have a show of hands, please, here in the room, as to whose organisations have implemented the terms of that legislation? More? Anyone else? Okay. I think it's possibly clear that organisations must take this legislation seriously. It is new legislation akin to the Bribery Act in the UK, but it imposes even higher standards. While there has been little to enforce that act as yet, it is something that you'll need to consider, especially later this year. Because later this year, we will have the CEA, the Corporate Enforcement Authority. That will be tasked with investigating and possibly prosecuting bribery and corruption offences. For example, Shauna spoke about forged documents, documents presented under misrepresentation or false documents. Presenting forged documents to a regulator is a criminal offence under the terms of this legislation. So it is not something that should be undertaken lightly. Now finally we'll have SEER, the new Senior Executive Accountability Regime. That comes into force later this year. SEER will impose obligations and duties on senior executives in the financial services industry. Those obligations will render certain people or individuals likely in your organisations po subject possibly to enforcement action by the CBI. Finally, I'd like to leave you with one piece of advice. Do not underestimate the sea of changes that is coming our way. The new corporate offences legislation will affect everyone in this room. Make sure you understand it and you are familiar with it and make sure your organisation is ready. Sorry, I meant Corruption Offences Act. When the CEA is established later this year, it won't be long before we see enforcement activity. Likewise with SEER, its introduction and implementation will require a vast amount of work on your part and within your organisations. Clawback and malice may not be words with which you are yet familiar, but you will be. You will need to ensure that your policies are updated, you will need to coordinate with various parts of your business to ensure consistency. And now is the time to seek that extra budget, that extra headcount, to ensure that you have the resource you need in order to implement these new legislative provisions. Finally, we live in very exciting times in my view. Ireland plays host to some of the biggest names on Wall Street and across the tech sphere. Recently, Ireland has taken significant steps to overcome its failings in the regulatory landscape. Over the coming months and years, we will see very significant changes in its, in its regulatory landscape. There will be marked changes in enforcement activity. Ultimately, it is in the interests of everyone in this room that we are aware of those changes and prepare for them in a way that is least disruptive to all of our business practices. And with you, with that, I will pass over to the esteemed Mr. Carswell. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Maureen. Thank you. Thanks to Mason Hayes and Curran for inviting me along to speak here. Uh, I'll speak as a recovering financial journalist, uh, looking back at the failings of the past. Um, and unfortunately, we had for many decades a very poor track record when it came to white-collar crime and enforcement in the area of financial regulation. 
Prior to the book that Liam mentioned earlier, I wrote another book in 2006 before the banking crisis called Something Rotten, give you an idea of what that was about. I looked at the culture within Irish banking. But if we trace modern Irish banking back to the foundation of AIB in 1966 and look at the financial landscape and up to the post-crash recent years, it was only two individuals served time in prison over various controversies involving an Irish bank, Billy Society of Financial Institution. And that's surprising given the number of controversies over that period, be it to do with customers' deposits being dipped into, overcharging, institutional tax evasion, or offshore tax evasion. And those two individuals were John Rusnak, who served time in various US federal prisons for his $700 million uh, rogue trading losses, and Patrick Gallagher, the property developer, for misappropriating funds in a Northern Irish bank owned by his property group. Now, Gallagher was responsible for very similar or even more egregious offences in the Republic, but no case was ever brought against him here. Perhaps that had something to do with his financial support of one Charles Hawhey. Remarkably, the first fine for a bank or billing society came in October 2008 as the financial crisis hit, when Irish Nationwide was fined €50,000 for touting for deposits using the state guarantee scheme. And that's extraordinary that that was the first fine given the decades of financial scandals that we had prior to that. And also given the fact that Ireland had something of a reputation of being the wild west of financial services in the run-up to the crash. As to more recent, the more recent financial crisis, which I covered in the in Anglo Republic, uh, people may consider that as a banking crisis, but in fact that crisis was a regulatory one, it was one of regulatory failure. In the hierarchy of blame, the regulator should sit at or near the top alongside the banks. At the root cause of the build-up in the crisis, there was, at the centre of that crisis, was a toothless regulator hopelessly following principles-led or soft-touch regulations and a poorly structured organisation where many responsibilities fell between two stools, between the central bank on one side and the financial regulator on the other. The build-up of risks in the banks and the exposure to the property market should have sounded alarm bells in Dame Street. It did, but they didn't respond to them. Even though some raised concerns internally, but even those were too little too late and they fell on deaf ears inside the regulator. The regulator's own analysis of the risks building in the bank vis-a-vis -vis the property market should have sounded those alarm bells, but really, uh, they didn't respond. The toxic cocktail of errors were there, inadequate and flawed regulation and supervision, failing to spot exposure of borrowing way too short and lending far too long, flawed assumptions on house prices. The regulator was also too deferential and accommodating and relaxed, taking the bank's words as gospel. Poorly resourced supervisors who relied on risk-based management and really shoddy assessments. One of the most interesting exercises I thought during uh, the post-crash period was by Patrick Onahan, uh, the professor later to be central bank governor. He looked at the five by five exercise, the, the five big exposures of big developers across five institutions. And Patrick Onahan's look back at that, there were remarkable findings as an example of how poor regulation was. In that exercise, he noted that the regulator that the banks had only sketchy understanding of the total debts of each borrower across the banks. In some instances, banks relied on net worth statements from the borrowers themselves. One included a 100 million euro loan as net worth. One bank had a borrower worth hundreds of millions, and the other, another bank had the same borrower with debts of one billion. There's a catalogue of banking deficiencies in that exercise, and they were not taken on board by the regulator. And a sign of just how they weren't taken on board is the post-inspections meetings that took place after that lasted just 20 minutes. 
Banks did not understand the underlying collateral that they were taking on as risk, and neither did the regulator. There was also, in my view, too great a focus on consumer protection to the exclusion of prudential supervision. So the question on those ads that were put out by the financial regulator should not have been, I don't know what a tracker mortgage is, but I really don't know how safe my deposit or even my bank is. So where have we come since then? The Central Bank Act of 2010, in the wake of the financial crisis, empowered the regulator with the ability to pose very large fines, in the case of up to 10 million or 10% of turnover, whichever is greater. It also allows the regulator to take greater actions against individuals with a stronger fitness and probity regime. And we've seen that in the case of some of the former executives of Irish Nationwide, and that process is still ongoing. Uh, Shauna touched on the enforcement actions, 131 sanctions, 99 million in fines, six prohibition notices under fitness and probity. Last year alone, 10 enforcement actions and fines totaling 7.4, including the 3.5 million fine on RSA Insurance Ireland after investigations into various issues around governance arrangements, accounting procedures, and internal controls. I think this year is a very interesting moment for the regulator. We saw the first fine in the tracker mortgage scandal, and it's astonishing that we've had a 1 billion uh, euro scandal after the crisis. Um, the first fine was issued against permanent TSB, but it's going to be interesting, I think, for a test to see whether the regulator pursues individuals, whether individuals will fall into this um, enforcement action. As for prosecutions out of the banking crisis, the conviction of David Drum this year, the former chief executive of Anglo-Irish Bank, that ended nine years of investigations into that bank. And the cases have resulted in the convictions of four former bankers, four at Anglo, one at Irish Life and Permanent, and sentences totaling more than 14 years being handed down to four of those individuals. As for corporate enforcement and white-collar uh, crime enforcement when it comes to work beyond the regulator. I think there's still a lot of questions around the journey that the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement has to take to this new entity uh, that has been mentioned already, the Corporate Enforcement Authority. It's still a work in progress. It's still, in fact, winding its way through the Oireachtas. There's a lot of outstanding issues into the failures of the Corporate Law Watchdog Office over the botched investigation into the Sean Fitzpatrick uh, case and what happened there. What's more worrying is Ian Drennan, the, the corporate enforcer, has said his office would not be equipped to deal with another investigation of the scale of the inquiries into Anglo-Irish Bank if it happened again in the morning. The one benefit of the Corporate Enforcement Authority, which the Taoiseach has described as an Irish FBA, uh, FBI for white-collar crime, is that it has, had, has the authority to hire in specialist investigators such as forensic accountants, forensic lawyers, which is good news for you guys. As for public confidence in the banking sector, there is a lot more work to be done. If you look at last year, the communications agency, the reputations agency, they released their RepTax study. It's a really interesting one. I love when it comes out every year. It's really interesting to see how the people, people view particular brands. And it's a study on who's the most highly regarded organization in the state. And guess where the banks featured in 2018? Permanent TSB, 88th out of, out of 100. KBC was 89th, AIB 90th, Ulster Bank 92nd, Bank of Ireland 93rd. And if you're wondering, are people concerned about just where their money is being held? Well, they're not, because in first place, the organization held in the highest regard in terms of public trust, admiration, and esteem were credit unions. In second place was Kellogg's. So credit unions and cornflakes, the things the public trusts most. Only one other financial institution featured below those banks in 2018. I'm sorry to say, Sean, that was the Central Bank of Ireland in 94th place. Now, it's risen three places since then, but it's still behind AIB, Bank of Ireland, and permanent TSB. So it gives you a sense of where the public views the banks and views the regulator.
The one thing I wanted to start with, um, given that it's so in the news at the moment, and it will have an impact on financial services, is the B word, Brexit. And given the number of financial companies moving from London to Dublin because of Brexit, I'm wondering, Shauna, does this make the job of enforcement more difficult? Um. I mean, I, I suppose I, I, it is in extraordinary how Brexit is dominating everything at the moment. I don't think it does make the job of enforcement more difficult. Uh, the central bank has been really clear in the context of applications for authorizations in a Brexit context that we were going to be robust, we were going to look for presence in Ireland, and that we would be an intrusive supervisor. And part of our toolkit is enforcement. A lot of the firms that are coming here would be well used to an effective regulator from the UK. Uh, and it is important that they understand that we too are an effective regulator and that enforcement will be part of our toolkit and that if um, they breach their requirements and, and matters are serious, enforcement action will follow. Maren, you're a recent arrival back home, a Brexile from, from London. And the whole idea of Brexit is, and I think we're learning it on an hourly basis from the proposals coming out of the UK government, is divergence. Uh, so when you consider that they are going to diverge, does that mean you talked about international cooperation when it comes to investigations and inquiries? If there is that level of divergence and severe divergence, what's that going to mean for international cooperation between regulators when it comes to investigations or inquiries in your view? I think while divergence may follow in terms of regulations, the broader principles will remain the same. You know, bribery is bribery, corruption is corruption, regardless of the jurisdiction in which it happens. Um, the same is true, I think, in Ireland in terms of, you know, broader regulation, in terms of enforcement activities, because Ireland seems to look at the UK. I mean, much about SEER, the, the new accountability regime, has been taken from the senior managers regime, and that is the, basically the, the entity in the UK that we're adopting here. Um, so, I mean, while the nuances will change slightly, perhaps, I would think broader principles will remain the same. Ireland, you know, given its size, we are only two million workers, ultimately, which is even a fraction of what London is, will need to look elsewhere for guidance, for resource potentially. You know, there are ongoing secondments between at least the SFO, the Serious Fraud Office in the UK, and its counterparts in the US. Perhaps that's something Ireland will also look to. So I can't really see that divergence requirement that the UK government is articulating at the moment having much of an effect for us. I think the principles broadly will remain the same, but I mean, perhaps I'll, I'll, I don't know if you differ. Sure. I mean, look, we, we do an awful lot by way of engagement uh, in a European context with other regulators. Um, the UK moving off the stage is definitely going to have an impact. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something that we're very focused on uh, in the context of keeping good relations with the FCA and the PRA and continuing to work together. But I think the climate is going to be quite challenging moving forward. You mentioned there some of the enforcement action that the central bank has been taking in recent years. And prior to the crisis, there was very little. I think talking to some businesses, they'd be concerned about the administrative burden or the burden of compliance in small and medium-sized firms. Has the pendulum swung too far the other way in terms of enforcement post-crisis? Well, it's funny having listened to what you just said, Simon. It's kind of difficult to um, uh, you go anywhere near that. Um, I don't think so. I, I think, look, the risks are always changing, so the framework has to adapt. I think that, you, you know, you spoke very eloquently about, you know, criticisms made of the regulator previously around soft touch and, a, and a, the regulator not using its stick. Um, of course, you need to do that proportionately. Of course, you need to bear in mind the burden of compliance. 
But you know, I think what I set out is what we're looking to actually achieve is a trusted financial system. And, and trust is something that, you know, it's a word you can throw around, but that's a problem for financial services in Ireland. And uh, as the regulator, we want to see trust rebuilt. It's important that the public has trust in us, notwithstanding that disappointing statistic you just gave me there. Uh, and it's important that financial services rebuild trust and confidence. That there's a societal bond in all of this that has to work. Uh, and, I, and I think um, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't agree with the over-regulation point at this stage. We had some questions in advance from, from people attending here today. And one point was made is to date, much of the focus has been on bank or financial institution regulation. And uh, attendee here was wondering, what should the in insurance industry expect over the coming months? Is there any difference, change in approach when yeah. it comes to insurance? Um, the banking sector have seen a focus from the central bank in relation to culture. I think the insurance sector can expect to see that focus coming in there as well. I think in the context of consumer protection, uh, the, the consumer protection risk assessment of the CPRA used by our consumer protection directorate is going to come into focus for insurance, uh, resolution planning, climate change. So there's an awful lot um, that the insurance sector needs to be thinking about and, and that would be a focus for the central bank over the next while. Just if anyone has, has questions, there's the email address there and the question will be handed up to me. So please do contribute anything if you want to add a question. The government announced a fortnight ago that the corporate enforcement agency has been listed under priority legislation uh, for the autumn session. A lot of people would say that's long overdue. Um, how do you think the bank's mandate will be affected by the incoming agency and what relationship are they likely to have between mm -hmm. the two? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really interesting to watch, you know, the work of the Law Reform Commission. I think you mentioned 200 recommendations. So there's a huge breadth to proposals for reform. Um, from a central bank perspective, we support any, any advancements that strengthen the framework. This is obviously a, a key measure. Uh, we work very closely with other bodies in the context of the broader Irish framework. Uh, I believe in that personally. I think that's really important because ultimately we all have a fairly common objective. Um, so cooperation with the new entity from the central bank. Our mandates are different, but there are times where mandates overlap. I work in anti-money laundering and uh, our mandate is different, but overlaps very closely with Angarda Siakona. And part of the work we do is very much around cooperation with them to make the system better. And I would see that no different in the context of a new agency. And just if I can, I mean, what happens if there's a fight over who takes the enforcement role? I mean, for example, if there's going to be, you know, divergence of authority, who will take charge? Or is that something even that has been discussed yet? Is it too early days? No, I mean, we've made submissions to the Law Reform Commission in the context of how we might think that might best work in terms of lead regulators, etc. But, you know, the reality is, in the absence of formal structures, you make it work, and we make it work. Uh, it will depend on what the uh, suspicions are, it will depend on what piece of legislation it falls within, and sometimes where there will be cooperation and joint work when needed, and other times agencies will take the mandate and run with it. Uh, and, and this comes back to my point about, you know, different tools for different things. So sometimes things may be more, um, either maybe need a criminal investigation and prosecution, others may be more amenable to regulatory considerations. So you, you need to look at everything in its, on its own merits and decide what to do, but we do that in cooperation. Okay. Liam, you spoke there about um, being at the other end of an investigation, uh, working on behalf of clients. How do you see that role changing from what you've read of what the Corporate Enforcement Authority will do with its new powers? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think each investigation is unique and, you know, to a large extent, investigations are reactive. So in terms of the approach that would be adopted by the Corporate Enforcement Agency, I think, as Sean has said, I mean, you're looking at essentially an holistic approach. I don't think that their approach is going to be radically different to CBI or any other regulator. I think they'll bring a level of sophistication. I mean, just, you know, as an aside, the um, corruption offences um, legislation was mentioned, and it's a sad reality that the first prosecutions under that legislation are in fact against serving guards. So, you know, um, we had met with the um, anti-corruption unit um, earlier in the year, and they were waiting, I mean, you're probably aware they had a hotline um, inviting complaints from the public, which was, you know, remarkably quite slow um, to pick up. Um, so I think we're all on a steep learning curve. I think that um, if there's one thing people involved in investigations have learned is that each investigation is absolutely different and you must, you know, as Shauna said, be utterly responsive to the regulator. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, it's some kind of obsequious exchange. I mean, I think there has to be, you know, a proper um, tension there. But nonetheless, it is a dynamic process where, as Murren said, you're engaged in finding the truth, in relaying the facts, the complete facts, properly to the regulator. And then I think you assume the role of an advocate on, on, on the part of your client. One question from the floor is, Shauna, how do you see the new bribery legislation impacting the aircraft leasing sector? Very big sector here. Gosh. Take a flyer. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an informed view on that. But, you know, look, I, I, think, I think this, uh, you made the point in terms of, you know, how prepared and, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be very interesting to see what happens on foot of that. It's a new, it's a whole new, whole new vista for Ireland. I can actually maybe speak to that a bit. I worked on the Rolls-Royce investigation um, instigated by the Serious Fraud Office, and it was again under the Bribery Act. Um, and we represented a number of, at the time, individuals. I mean, I think the, the key to the, the new legislation that we have is that it's extraterritorial. That means it does, doesn't affect Ireland. It affects any part of your business that is other than Ireland or you know, elsewhere. So it's, you'll have to consider it very carefully. It is certainly something the leasing sector will have to look at. You will likely have to have policies in place and it will go further down the line. You know, you just, your liability won't stop at the end of the leasing operation. You will need to understand where your operations are, what the supply chains are. If you have agents, for example, that you're engaging somewhere else down the line in another jurisdiction, you may or may not, depending on the way the regulator looks at it, be liable for any offences that is, is caused in the broader scheme of things. So it's certainly something I would take very serious in that, in that you know, area, given my background from the Rolls-Royce. We do have a row of microphones if anyone has a question in the front row here. Hi, Sean. Neil Michel uh, from Mason Hayes and Curran. Just two questions. Um, one is um, you mentioned big data and you mentioned obviously the, the beast that is big data and uh, the complexity and the amount of information that may be sought by a regulatory authority. You also mentioned delay and cooperation. Um, given the difficulties that are sometimes involved in these massive exercises, do you think that regulators will now increasingly um, interact before issuing, say, document production requirements with the regulated entity to see what is manageable and what is achievable in terms of time frames um, b before make, making a statutory request, for example? So that's, that's the first question. 
And the second one is that you mentioned that there's greater detail now in the central bank's own publications relating to administrative sanctions decisions and so on, as well as the guidance that's forthcoming in November uh, in relation to sanctioning factors. The one thing that uh, I think may may benefit from some greater clarity and guidance is the methodology and assessment of the financial penalties uh, and what what goes towards what and how it's allocated, how it's measured. Um, and I don't know if any of that will be will be forthcoming in the future. Um, just in relation to the, the big data point, um, I think there is a lot of merit in regulators engaging with firms around the requests. Because at the end of the day, we want to establish what happened and we want to get the information that allows us to do that. And we are certainly very willing to work proactively with firms in that regard. Um, I suppose what we want to see is reciprocation in the context of working with us to do that. And our concern that I'm sort of highlighting is how long it can take. Perhaps sometimes it feels to me for the penny to drop that this is not going to be years. This is going to be something that we're going to really look for to be prioritized and taken seriously. Part of the recruitment of data specialists on our side was to try and do better on our side about understanding what the challenges would be and setting things out in ways that data specialists on either side could speak to each other. Um, in the context of, you know, we, we just talked about tr trust and sort of transparency and a lot of, you know, our public statements and all of what we're doing in the context of these guidance is, you know, sort of around greater transparency. We don't have any plans to publish sort of guidance. I hear a lot of this, you know, when, when will I get a mathematical calculation of how I can expect to be fined? There, there is no such, you know, we're not planning to publish any such thing. And that is because there is a huge breadth of consideration that comes into play when we perform our role and we bring our judgment to bear. And that is not a mathematical equation. But what the sanctioning factors that we set out in the ASP outline set out is these are the factors we take into consideration. And in the guidance that we're going to publish, what we're drawing out is in relation, for example, to cooperation, what do we see as being behavior that is aggravating, that is going to cause us to increase the level of sanction? But in good news, what do we see as cooperation that could be mitigating, which would mean that you would have a, a lesser sanctioning application or consideration there? And there's, but there's a huge breadth to what we have to think about in the context of how serious was it? How long did it go on? Was there significant consumer detriment? So I, I don't see this as being capable of being reduced to a straight maths formula. In as much as anything, I'd be concerned as to how firms might think about that in the context of weighing up their actions versus what they might be fined. So um, we are about transparency. We are certainly being very transparent in our public statements about our findings and what we see as serious. And I hope the guidance in November is going to help firms. I think, I think sorry, excuse me. Um, that obviously you don't necessarily want to telegraph and there's no way of putting amounts on certain things in advance, but the methodology, I think, is difficult for, for regulated entities to assess in advance and to provision and to prepare. All they know is there's, there are the statutory prescribed limits and there is an overall limit of not imposing financial hardship. But apart from that, they, they don't really have any idea um, from precedent or otherwise what the amount might be. I, I know it shouldn't be a cost of doing business. I know you're trying to dissuade and make sure that they don't, you know, have an idea that it's going to be something they can live with and just behave in some cavalier fashion, 
Um, but apart from that, I think they would welcome more of an idea of how to prepare for what might be coming down. I, I, do, I do think the guidance in November will be helpful. I think let's, um, let's see. I think we're out of time. People have very busy days to get to. So uh, thank you very much to the panelists here, to Liam, to Shauna, and to Moiran. And thank you for your time. Thank you.